Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Change the World. I'm Steve Tibbet, and today we are focusing on the Freedom Rides. Um, Freedom Riders were groups of white and African American civil rights activists who participated in bus trips through, uh, through the American South in 1961 to protest against segregated bus terminals and buses. In 1947, the Congress of Racial Equality, also known as CORE, created a journey of reconciliation to draw attention to racial segregation in public transportation in the southern cities and states. And the Freedom Rides, which began in May 1961, wanted to test compliance with two new Supreme Court rulings, one which declared that segregated bathrooms, waiting rooms and lunch counters were unconstitutional, and another which ruled that it was unconstitutional to implement the enforced segregation on interstate buses and trains. So the Freedom Rides took place in uh, in within that context the civil rights movement as it was gathering momentum and it was a period in which African Americans were routinely harassed and subjugated to segregation in what's known as the Jim Crow South. So my two guests today are both historians. Dr. Emily Crosby is the coordinator of the Black Studies Program at the State University of New York College at Geneseo. And Hassan Kwame Jeffries is a history professor and author at Ohio State University. But both Hassan and Emily have written extensively about the civil rights movement. And I think you'll agree some of their insights are fascinating. But it's also instructive to look back at these kind of campaigns from history, I think, especially the the successful ones which we try to do here on 100 Campaigns That Change the World. So here is the podcast, the interview with Emily and Hassan. Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Change the World. I'm Steve Tibbet and I'm here with Emily Crosby and Hassan Kwame Jeffries. We are talking about the Freedom Rides. And just to kick off then, Emily and Hassan, and which whoever wants to go first is good with me, but maybe you could just say a little bit about where the Freedom Rides sits in the pantheon of the civil rights movement and, and how it sort of, how it c- came about, how the thinking and the, the action came about. Well, maybe I'll start and then and hand off to, to Emily a little bit. And, and I'll begin perhaps with what was happening in 1960 and 1961. The Freedom Rides, of course, begin in May of 1961. And so at that moment in time, the sit-ins the, the, had already begun uh, in earnest, uh, beginning uh, in February of 1960, uh, really that Greensboro sit-in sort of captivates the imagination of uh, African-American young people demonstrating nonviolently against segregation, legal discrimination. And of course, there had been other sit-ins before then, but the February 1960 sit-ins really galvanize and spark this sort of movement and they begin to spread. We have in April of 1960, the founding of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which at the time is really a organization designed to coordinate literally the nonviolent protest that had sprung up through the sit-ins. Of course, advised and springing from the imagination of veteran organizer Ella Baker. But as we move into sort of the fall of 1960 and then into 1961, you know, there still is this question of the sit-ins made a dent, but how much of a difference did it make in cities throughout the South and towns throughout the South? 
segregation was still very much the law of the land. And the federal government, most importantly, was still on the sideline. John F. Kennedy had just been elected president of the United States in 1960. And African-Americans, Martin Luther King and others were were hopeful, were pushing him uh, that to become involved, to move the federal government onto the side of those activists who were fighting uh, to end segregation in the South. And Kennedy was reluctant. Kennedy was uh, disinterested and Kennedy wasn't moving. And so as we move into sort of the late spring of 1961, the question becomes, you know, how can we both act, inject new energy into the, the civil rights struggle, into the nonviolent struggle in particular around fighting against segregation, legal segregation? And how can we also force the hand of the federal government to get the federal government to come in on the side of movement activists? And maybe now I hand it off to Emily and she can talk a little bit more specifically about uh, the choice of choosing interstate uh, travel as the sort of object of the activists. Yeah, thanks, Hassan. I think, you know, everything Hassan said is exactly right. And one of the tools that the activists had was actually a couple of Supreme Court decisions. And so there was a Supreme Court decision in 1946, Morgan v. Virginia, uh, an African-American woman refused to move and be segregated on a bus and was arrested in her case. And her challenge to that ended up in the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, you, you can have segregated transportation in a state, but it's too disruptive to commerce. Nothing about, you know, the people involved, but it's too disruptive to commerce to require segregation on transportation that crosses state lines. And in response to that, two organizations, civil rights organizations that were interested in nonviolence, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is a pacifist organization, anti-war, and a much younger group, the Congress of Racial Equality, uh, also known as CORE, which is sort of offspring of for Fellowship of Reconciliation. They looked at this and they said, okay, now that we've got this Supreme Court decision, let's test it. Let's see if we can actually get some enforcement. And so they organized something called the Journey of Reconciliation that traveled through the Upper South and essentially tried to integrate those buses. You know, they had mixed success as they did it. It was a group of African-American and white men, and they did it and it was kind of a a one-time thing, but that was in the back of people's minds. And so as the sit-ins start sweeping the country and people are really thinking much more actively about the role that nonviolent protests can play and direct action, there's a second Supreme Court decision, Boynton v. Virginia in 1960. And in this case, the Supreme Court extends that idea, not just from the bus, not just on the buses, the trains, the planes themselves, but in any kind of restaurant or business that supports interstate transportation. And with this new decision, uh, James Farmer, of course, begins to think back to that journey of reconciliation. And can we take this idea of sit-ins, direct action, and put it on buses? And in this way, sort of challenge the federal government to actually enforce these laws with the sit-ins, they're challenging segregation laws in various states and municipalities. But with the Freedom Rides, ostensibly, they're within the law. And whatever the local segregation laws are, they should have the federal government on their side. So it's a perfect way to force the federal government to make a decision. So they begin to plan the Freedom Rides, you know, the route, the approach. They get uh, send out a call for people and accept applications for the participants. You know, I 
don't know if you want me to continue, but those sort of pieces together, I think the legal background and the sit-ins really set the stage. It's good to get a sense of kind of how open all of this strategizing was. For instance, we know that at at certain points in the Freedom Rides, you know, the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan were organized and and ready to meet the buses as as they came into certain towns or certain bus stations. How did they find that stuff out? And, you know, because I'm interested really in, in the question about how open was this strategizing? They were taking applications. Who could see that? And was this a closed group or was it pretty open? Well, they weren't posting advertisements to participate on the Freedom Rides on the internet, obviously, right? <laughs> Uh, so it was selective in terms of who was going to participate. And they were actually really selective because they wanted people mm-hmm. who were committed to nonviolent. Unlike the earlier Freedom Ride that Emily had talked about, this one accepted both men and women. And so the first one, of course, was just men. So this one, you know, they accept men and women, black and white. But you had to have an express commitment to nonviolence. And this is why, in part, you know, some folk like Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Toure later on, is like, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> right. Like, not in this moment, not in this way. So the application process was closed in that sense. I mean, they were they were very selective. They just weren't throwing the door open for that initial freedom ride. A little bit later on, I think they 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 open it up, invite more people, they kind of do an open call. But initially, it's it's really small to that sort of circle of people who are already closely affiliated with CORE. At the same time, they do inform the Justice Department that this is their intention. They let the buses, the trailways and the Greyhound services know that they are riding together and that this is their intention. And so, you know, it was it was an open secret, right? I mean, part of the strategy was not to surprise the federal government. And hopefully in advance, they would know the likelihood or the high probability of trouble that they would be there to prevent the trouble. I mean, the goal wasn't let's get in trouble and then hopefully the cavalry will come. <laughs> you know, it was, hey, you know, there may be trouble in here. So how about you do your job? But because they were uh, open in that way, letting the federal government know, hoping the Justice Department would take action, letting the uh, buses know that this was their intention, that they did not plan on moving once they hit, headed to the south. That then allowed for those Southern officials, police officers, local public officials to get the heads up. And in places like Alabama and Anniston and in Birmingham in particular, Montgomery, Alabama, the Klan organized racial terror groups in Alabama and the Klan. There were many Klans, but the Klan groups in Alabama were among the most highly organized and the most violent in the early 1960s. They were inseparable from the police, the, the Birmingham police in particular, uh, led by Commissioner of Public Safety uh, Bull Connor. I mean, his force was just riddled with Klan members. And so once they knew, the Klan knew. And so when the Freedom Riders, that initial wave, once they hit Anniston uh, and then Birmingham, it's not the Justice Department that's waiting for them. It's the clan. So I'm just coming uh, and I'll let you come in, Emily. So to what extent was that specific tactic of nonviolence, to what extent was it, you know, aiming for a confrontation in order to highlight this problem? Or was that 
in a, in a way, not a surprise. It wasn't what they were looking for was actually, you know, to successfully occupy different seats on the bus and different buses versus, you know, something that was going to be more explosive. What, what was the aim of the tactic? I think the Freedom Rides is where people see in kind of real time that the federal government will respond to violence and won't necessarily respond to a violation of people's rights. And so I think they're actually looking for success. They're looking to be able to do this. And I think they're looking to be able to, you know, do it and publicize it. Hey, look, we, you know, this is such a huge taboo, right? I think it's hard to imagine now just how taboo and unthinkable it was to ride freely in integrated groups, men and women, as Hassan says, black and white. And so uh, even though it doesn't sound like a lot, to be able to do that successfully would be just a huge psychological boost. And so, yeah, I think they they did hope, you know, now they're not stupid either. And I think they also know how absolutely likely it is that there's going to be violence. I mean, it's just it's kind of, again, unimaginable that they can do this and there not be repercussions. So I don't think anybody was delusional. Um, and I, so I think they really were hoping that the federal government would step in and use its authority to, you know, prevent bloodshed, prevent death, serious injury. Son, you have some thoughts? Yeah, if I, if, if I could add, you know, we often, even then, but, but sometimes now as well, you know, we will fault or we will criticize these activists, freedom riders, nonviolent demonstrators for provoking violence. And, you know, that's misguided because as Emily pointed out, you know, their action wasn't to provoke. Their action was really to make visible the violence that was endemic in the Jim Crow South. And this was one of the ways to make it visible. They were abiding by the law and and particularly in the freedom rides, they're abiding by the law. And so the violence that results from their abiding by the law isn't them provoking it, right? It's white supremacists doing what they do to maintain the institution of, of segregation and Jim Crow and, and white supremacy. But that was also part of the, the strength and the, the genius and the daring of these types of nonviolent demonstrations. It was to make clear, to make visible that Jim Crow wasn't just an inconvenience, right? It wasn't just, you know, an unfortunate circumstance or happenstance that black people, you know, had to ride in the back of the bus. It was a violent system designed to control black labor and regulate black behavior. And too many white Americans in the South and certainly outside the South did not clearly understand how violent it was and that violence was its cornerstone. And so the Freedom Ride certainly... Let's get the federal government in here to enforce the law, but also to protect black people and to protect black activists against the violence of Jim Crow. And Birmingham is known as Bombingham at this point. And there have been all kinds of I mean, people moving into new homes would be bombed. It was you know, there was extraordinary violence in Birmingham. And I think that that context is really important. And as Hassan says, part of what the movement did was make this violence visible. And sometimes nonviolent protests were especially effective because the media could anticipate where the violence was going to happen. And so, you know, there's plenty of violence in the movement that didn't actually generate a response because it wasn't visible to the media. Yeah. And you've mentioned the federal government several times. Uh, I suppose there were different types of contacts with different parts of the federal government. And you also mentioned, obviously, the Kennedys and John Kennedy's just been 
elected in, you know, with promises on civil rights, which he didn't always live up to. To what extent was this, this particular part of the movement, this particular moment in time, what extent were they talking to the federal government? They obviously were, but at what levels? And, you know, were they sharing everything or were they holding back some information? I just want to get a sense of kind of how, how those lines of communication, how open those lines of communication were and at what levels. Well, certainly the movement activists, African-Americans, are interacting with the federal government at many different levels. By the time we get to 1961, movement activists are, you know, have open lines to of communication with the Justice Department. And so they're talking to and Robert F. Kennedy, the brother of John F. Kennedy, of course, is the attorney general. He has, you know, specific folk who, are, who have been tapped and tasked to represent uh, him and his interests uh, and the interests of, therefore, the president of the United States as it comes to these confrontations. And so movement activists are in direct communication with John F. Kennedy's, with Robert F. Kennedy's people, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy's people. His people are briefing Robert F. Kennedy, who is briefing the president. The movement activists are not dealing with the FBI. Uh, the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, which is under J. Edgar Hoover, Iron Fist. They are not friends and allies of the movement whatsoever. The heck, they're not even friends and allies of the Kennedy administration. They are not active in some places in Mississippi. They don't even have an office. But they do have, the FBI does have, has penetrated the Klan. And they have informants within the Klan. But rather than, you know, sort of use that information to stop Klan violence and terrorism, you know, the, the informants are actually participants, as we would see throughout the early 60s, especially in Alabama, in the violence. Uh, and in one case, the murder of Viola Layuzo in 1965, you know, it's very likely that the, an FBI informant was the, was the trigger man uh, in that killing. Uh, and so, you know, when we, we, we're talking about the federal government, and you're right, but it's really segments of the federal government that they're trying, the activists are trying to pull into the movement. But then you have segments of the federal government that are actively working against the movement. And that, in this instance, uh, would be the FBI uh, under J. Edgar Hoover. And the Kennedys really see this as an annoyance. They, uh, they don't want nothing to do with it. And in fact, the Freedom Rides really sort of forced the Kennedy administration to deal with the movement. And so, you know, the Kennedys... Yes, there are these communications that Hassan's talking about, but they're not real interested. And once the Freedom Rides, you know, get blown up in Alabama, the Kennedys are all over it, you know, trying to shut it down. We need a cooling off period. We need this. We need that. And, you know, and then sometimes they're talking to the wrong people. They're trying to say to Dr. King, gee, you need to shut this down. And Dr. King can't stop Diane Nash and, and the young people in SNCC. And so at this point, the Kennedys actually try to do some carrot and stick uh, at a certain point in the midst of the Freedom Rides to encourage the young people in SNCC to move into voter registration and stop Get you know, he thinks that that's going to be a safer outlet and get this racial violence out of the news. Uh, he miscalculates. But, you know, in some ways, the Freedom Rides really forced the issue, put the civil rights movement on the Kennedy's agenda, which they are not happy with at all. Okay, um, we'll be back shortly with Emily Crosby and Hassan Kwame Jeffries talking about the Freedom Rides in a few moments.
Okay, and we're back with Emily Crosby and Hassan Kwame Jeffries talking about the freedom rights. And I wanted to ask you both, and perhaps to start with Emily, just in terms of the tactics that were used by the freedom rights. We talked a little bit earlier about um, violence and whether there were you know difference of opinion about whether nonviolence was best tactic in this case. Whether other sort of disagreements within the movement, how united was it? Were you know how turbulent? Was it? I mean, you because you know what I've heard. It sounds pretty harmonious in a sense, you know. But but just get under the hood of it. Were there discussions about you know what should be done when and you know how and how much and when to stop and when to start and that that kind of thing. You know, as Hassan alluded to, I mean, there were definitely huge disagreements about nonviolence, whether it would be effective, whether it's a tactic or a way of life philosophy, and so that's kind of an ongoing huge debate. And you know. Uh, I was just rereading for class Stokely Carmichael's account of the Freedom Rides and his sort of skeptical response when they initially happened. And then once there's violence in Anniston and Birmingham, he finishes, he moves up his exams and, and joins as soon as he can. So in some ways, there's a way of sort of everybody throwing in together in the face of this crisis. But yeah, no, there are deep disagreements. And so one of them comes when there's after the violence in Alabama, when the Kennedys call for a cooling off period and some people in the movement, uh, I'm putting words in his mouth, but probably Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, the National Association of Colored People, which is the oldest organization. They probably thought a cooling off period was a good idea because they weren't keen on nonviolent direct action in the first place. But the young people in in SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they basically said, Diane Nash said, if we let violence stop the freedom rides, the movement is dead. There's, you know, nonviolent direct action will not work if we shut down every time there's violence. And there are people that are saying to her, it's too dangerous, you'll die. And she's like, we're prepared to risk that. The young people that were setting off to continue the freedom rides—they're—they're they're writing down wills, they're writing letters, you know, sort of to be delivered to their family if they don't make it, and you know they have good reason to be concerned given the extent of the violence. So there, there, there's a huge amount of conflict over that, just that question of whether or not to continue it. There were debates over strategy, core and SNCC in particular uh, believed in uh, trying to to push uh, local officials with jail, no bail, and staying in jail as long as possible. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which provided a lot of bail money and legal support, thought that was insane. Just, you know, you just have, you just need a test case. You don't need all these people pouring in. It just takes up more money, more legal, you know. So do you turn this into a legal test case or do you use nonviolent direct action? I mean, Hassan, I'm sure can speak to more of that, but those are some of the conflicts and differences. Yeah, I would add only that I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of African-Americans, their default response to racial violence and racial terrorism and hostility directed at them was to defend themselves, to defend themselves with guns, to defend themselves with them with their fists defend themselves by avoiding the situation. It certainly wasn't going into it. I mean, they felt that there was a right. And so the those who are embracing these nonviolent tactics and, and embracing them philosophically is like, look, this is how you have to live your life. I mean, that's a small group. That's an elite cadre of people, a handful 
to be sure. And we have to take them seriously. And they're, they're really dedicated. And what they're doing is is remarkable and also kind of crazy. Uh, but it proves to be um, effective in, in, in many ways. But and it doesn't take anything away from them to say that most black folk were like, yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, but, you know, that's always I mean, one of the things that's unique about this particular moment in the African-American freedom struggle, which literally stretches back to the moment of a man, for the, for the moment of uh, black folk arriving on these shores. Right. It's not a social movement but black people fighting for their freedom, a literal freedom from slavery, is that there have always been different approaches, different strategies. How are we going to get free? Everybody wants to be free, but how are we going to get there? And it's this unique moment of the 40s, 50s, and 60s where nonviolence, not just a strategy. I mean, people have been boycotting nonviolently streetcars at the turn of the 20th century, right? But this, this idea philosophically is this is going to govern how we interact with people at all levels. That's, that's unique. That's different. That's what marks this moment as different. It's a shift. It's an introduction. For most Black folk, again, then default is self-defense. And in a very real way, as we push forward, the default, you know, once we sort of kind of hit a little bit of a legislative wall, African with the 64 Civil Rights Act and 65 Voting Rights Act, black folk will return back to this idea of, look, as, as white violence ratchets up, then we have to go back to this position of self-defense. Yeah. And you, you mentioned there that it was, a. I mean, I think you hinted at this. It's a, it's a sort of watershed moment, but at the same time, it's just one moment in a long sweep of history of the civil rights movement, which is, you know, ongoing and goes back, as you said. But to what extent is this um, a high watermark or a pivotal moment? How would you characterize it? How would both of you characterize it in, in that sweep of history? Well, I certainly think the Freedom Rides are a pivotal moment. One, because they make clear the determination of a group of activists to use nonviolence no matter what. They were not backing down. It's pivotal in that it will bring the Student Nonviolent Coordinating, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, into Mississippi. So it becomes a turning point as, you know, we haven't talked about Freedom Riders being sort of jailed in Mississippi, but it, it serves as a launching pad, an introduction, point of entry uh, for SNCC activists who will do some of their most phenomenal work in Mississippi. And this is really what brings them there in mass and people on the ground already. But this is what really brings them there in mass. And then thirdly, I think it's critical because it does bring the Kennedy administration into the movement. As Emily was pointing out, they were reluctant. They were hesitant. They were unwilling to move. They saw this as an annoyance. They wanted these activists to step down, to, to, to stand down. And they offer, you know, sort of as the carrot, as Emily was pointing out, like, hey, how about y'all shift your energies towards voter registration, right? And not knowing, not thinking that there was no difference in the minds of white segregationists between nonviolent demonstrations and voter registration. All of it was a challenge to their power. And they were going to respond uh, equally, if not perhaps even more forcefully in more organized ways against challenges, direct challenges to white electoral power. But that being said, the federal government in the form of the Kennedy administration, so the executive branch, now has cast this lot uh, with, the, with the movement. They're trying to guide it. They're trying to steer it. They're reluctant allies, but they are no longer on the sidelines in the way that they were before. I was going to say the Freedom Rides, you could think of them too, maybe as the high point of nonviolent direct action. 
And, you know, it carries it from these uh, individual sit-ins that are really important because they're sweeping, you know, the South, et cetera. But this, we have the right to move throughout the South and to do it in this openly, you know, integrated way. It forces, as Hassan said, the Kennedy administration, they come off the sidelines, they end up getting the Interstate Commerce Commission to issue new guidelines that go into effect November 1st, 1961, which in turn generates a whole new set of protests. Um, And nonviolent direct action continues, but as Hassan points out, for many organizations, they do shift into other areas at this point. So, you know, nonviolent direct action continues to be a supplement. It continues to happen in different locations, but this is probably the high point of that as a tactic uh, in a widespread basis in the movement. Just thinking about those freedom riders as campaigners, and and nowadays, you know, campaigns will have for people doing these types of direct actions or, you know, other types of actions, you know, support network, um, they'll think about, you know, their risk, their legal rights. What sort of infrastructure was there around the Freedom Riders? Some of them were jailed, as you said, some of them were beaten, uh, often sometimes very severely. You know, to what extent was there an infrastructure that was deliberately built to support them? Well, you know, I, mean, I was just simply going to say, Emily, there's a couple different phases. And so there's initial phase of the Freedom Riders that are coming out of D.C., that, that's really core. Then SNCC will pick up the, the sort of the banner after Anniston and Birmingham, after the attacks in Anniston and Birmingham. So that brings in sort of another sort of infrastructure. And then once you sort of get through Montgomery and it the Freedom Rides really open up, then it becomes even a, a different sort of infrastructure apparatus comes into play as people are coming and arriving, not only in Mississippi, but really throughout the South through different means and modes of of transportation. But uh, Emily, you want to talk a little bit about the specifics of that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, initially the support really comes through CORE as an organization, and it's really focused on this thir- the 13 original riders. And SNCC at that time doesn't have much infrastructure. So when they jump into it, it's really young people. Their strongest support that they have is really the Nashville Christian Leadership Conference, which is a a wing of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, otherwise known as King's Organization. And, you know, in Nashville, they have a strong group and and they provide important, you know, money for, for bus tickets and support like that. But really, the Freedom Ride, you asked about disagreements and collaboration in the movement. The Freedom Ride, really, everybody pitches in to help once things blow up in Alabama. And so there's uh, the development of something called the Freedom Rides, I think, Coordinating Committee, which has representatives from the major civil rights groups that are part of it. And they start raising money. They try to make decisions together to show a united front. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund brings in bail money and legal support. And then in Mississippi, because we haven't really talked about this, but the Kennedy administration makes a deal with officials in Mississippi that as long as they keep the violence out of the public, Mississippi can do what it wants with the Freedom Riders. So they arrest them, they throw them in prison or in jail, Hines County Jail, and then the, the, the city jail, then the, the county jail. And then they send them to Parchman Penitentiary, where the men at least are on death row for a while. And so there's plenty of violence in Mississippi. It's just not in public. It's, you know, behind bars and these prisons be out of view. But once uh, Mississippi becomes kind of a destination and some people are, you know, jailed for two months or even longer, 
the, they, they talked about doing their 40 days because I think if you did 39 days, you could still appeal. But after that, you lost your right to appeal. A group of local African-American women developed a group called Woman Power Unlimited, and they, you know, began to raise money and basically try to be a home away from home or a support for the Freedom Riders themselves. So bring them things in jail to help make them more comfortable, make sure their parents knew where they were, make sure when they got let out, they could have a shower and a place to stay and a way to get home. And so you really have kind of an outpouring uh, and a coming together of both the organizations and African-American people more broadly. And then, of course, again, as Hassan says, initially, you had to go through a really strict process to be part of the Freedom Rides. Once they get blown open after Montgomery or, or opened up, people across the country get involved. And, you know, some are part of a Freedom Ride for a day. They, they ride, they get arrested, they bail out, and they're, and they're back home, back to their lives. But other people really made that commitment. And so I think the resources and support was mostly ad hoc, but it was it was very important. And it was you know, organized through the Freedom Rights Coordinating Committee at a certain point. Perhaps a final question for you two both. And it's, it's a difficult question to answer. It always is, especially for historical campaigns and movements. What, what does this tell us or what lessons can you draw out from this experience for today's campaigners? I mean, that's really the purpose of this podcast. Or one of the purposes of it is to sort of think, what can we learn? You know, because on the one hand, you might say, well, the tactic of nonviolent direct action is important. But, you know, that may not always be appropriate. So what does it tell modern campaigners about how to campaign? What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think one of the things that comes out of the Freedom Rides campaign that is translatable to any movement is understanding the playing field. The Freedom Riders and uh, the organizations behind the Freedom Rides, you know, beginning with CORE, but then, of course, SNCC and and certainly SCLC and even NAACP in, in, in different ways, understood that they weren't just fighting random racist individuals in the South, that they were actually fighting government, right? These were state government. And in order to adequately challenge government, they needed government. I mean, one of the things that's unique about the, the U.S. system is this federal system. So you have an overarching federal government, but then you also have the state governments and city governments and municipalities and the like. And the racial discrimination was being upheld at this point by the state governments and state government officials. And so it wasn't just that Freedom Riders thought it would be nice to have the federal government on their side. Like they understood they needed the force of the federal government on their side because they were dealing with governments that at state level and, and city level uh, and local level that were actively working against them. And so understanding both who the opposition was and then who could and should be your allies and then trying to bring them in, uh, even when they're reluctant. I mean, they dragged the federal government, the Kennedys in kicking and screaming, but they brought them in. And that was important. I think understanding that sort of what is the playing field, you know, what, what's going on and who are the players and actors uh, is really important and one of the lessons that comes from uh, the success of the Freedom Ride. And great, great I would just say, textbook yeah. answer there from Hassan, sorry. <laughs> no, no, and I would agree. And, and just like along the lines of what Hassan was saying, understand pressure points, you know, understanding pressure points is really important. 
But I also think you asked about disagreements within the civil rights movement over tactics and stuff. And there were deep disagreements and a lot of people were, were suspicious or not, I don't know, suspicious, but, you know, we're not necessarily sure the Freedom Rides was a good idea. But I think a lot of people tried to suppress the conflicts and not just attack, right? There was a an attempt to try to, you know, even if you don't agree, don't, you know, don't make it a big fight in public. And when the Freedom Rides did step out and when things really got with the vicious violence in Alabama, then people followed, then people came in. So sometimes you you cannot get everybody to agree. Sometimes you have to step out on faith. You have to, as Hassan said, assess the playing field, make a decision about what you think is an important step forward, do your best to maintain good relationships with your potential allies and supports, but sometimes you have to step forward before everybody agrees. And if you do it you know, well, if you do it right, then ideally they will come on board when you need them. And I think that's also something that we see with the civil rights movement, with the Freedom Rides in particular, but I think we see it at other moments. There's often disagreement about what the next step should be, but when people do step forward, then generally people will rally around and provide that support and help. And so I think maintaining good relationships, but not requiring everybody to be on board before you take an action is also something we can learn from the Freedom Rides. Right, another another great answer. Thanks, Emily. And thanks, Hassan, for you, both of you for your time today. It's been really fascinating learning from you guys um, about the Freedom Rides. So, so thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm hoping you enjoyed that conversation with Emily and Hassan. I thought it was really, really good. You can read more about the issues. Um, I'll post some links on the description. Please do subscribe to 100 Campaigns That Change the World and please leave a comment. Please also leave a review uh, and a number of stars of your choosing, but a minimum of five. And I hope to see you again soon. Bye-bye.